Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called Women in Organised Crime Groups in Latin America. Women have always worked alongside their, their husbands, their fathers, their brothers, their partners, uh, their sons. Um, they have been couriers, they've been mules, they've been fixers, lookouts, financiers, money launderers and confidants and bosses, and the list goes on and on, right? In organized crime, um, assassins, sicarios, you know, so, so this is part of, um, again, that they're there, they're hiding in plain sight. And so what I like to say is that literally the questions or the ideas or, or the mindset is what leads to those blinders and you just pass over them. So that's what my work is really interrogating and complicating um, and, and demonstrating that they're there. And they have been there for a very long time. Thank you, Elaine. That is, that is, that is wonderful. And, and I also wonder, again, like what, what people like Patricia, Deborah and Carolina are seeing, you know, in the contemporary, you know, context of Latin America in terms of like, biases or, or 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 blind spots in terms of reporter and reporting and investigation is later on you know what historians in 20 30 years will find or not find right given these silences no so it's it's, it's interesting to think about uh, you know again how the blind spots that we have today impact the ways in which this is gonna you know go through history no or become like part of collective memories or 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 not memories or rather um carolina you want to jump in with this first round thank of questions thank you Gemma. uh the phrase that um philia alum and anna mitchell put in the last uh, book which is actually that women are footnotes in men's book which I think is very, very uh, nice. It's a nice way to understand the actual role that women are supposed to be playing at organized crime, the way as uh, Alain just mentioned, it's registered. Unfortunately, and I may say that in the case, in my case, I'm trying to understand the, the role of women from another point of view. Particularly, I'm wondering if a uh, law enforcement agency see women as criminal actors or not. And regarding that uh, way of looking at women and at criminal organizations in general, uh, we could have an idea of the security policies that the states develop in order to uh, fight criminal organizations organized crime in general. At the beginning, I may say it is it, as, as one of the first things I could say, it is very difficult to get to uh, the information, the information, as Deborah was uh, saying. In the case of Mexico, there may be more information available. Um, in the case of Brazil, for example, it's very difficult to get into the sources. I have been interviewing a lot of prosecutors, for example, uh, police, federal police, and I have noticed that not all the organizations have like the same um, relation with women. In the case of Brazil, for example, the Primero Comando da Capital, the PCC, 
it's a very um, men kind organization. They actually don't like women to be involved in that organization. Uh, it's a pressure-based system, but it doesn't mean that there are no women. Of course, it will see uh, some of the Mexican organizations as, such as the Jalisco Nueva, Gen Nueva Generación. We may find much more women around there. And um, I think one of the explanations may be related to one uh, of the things that Elaine was pointed out, that is the historical uh, point of view, right? Because um, these cartels have been alive for much more time. And many of these women grow in these environments and are part of these familias delincuenciales, right? This delinquential families. So it is um, more accepted in those environments that women may belong to the criminal organization. Um, I, of course, think that, think that there are many grays that nothing can be all black or all white. And I'm referring to your first um, comment regarding the idea of women being, you know, victims or either being absolutely absent. I think they are present in many ways. They are part of the change that can keep the drug trafficking organizations, the criminal organizations in general, going. Without this woman, it doesn't matter if they are at the low part of the pyramid or if they are, they are taking middle to high uh, level charges, but they are, you know, like keeping the organization alive. Thank you, Carolina. I mean, you're making me think also, um... I mean, statistically, I mean, the, the overrepresentation of women that are in prison due to drug crimes is very clear, no? I mean, and so it's interesting that we have, on the one hand, like these silences and these blind spots of not acknowledging fully their participation. And on the other hand, you see their overrepresentation, which clearly, on the one hand, reflects the fact that they are in the lower echelons of, you know, these criminal groups their specific vulnerability, no? and, but also perhaps the tendency of some of these uh, law enforcement institutions to you know, over-criminalize them, no? or, or, or rather because it's easier perhaps to, to, uh, to put them in prison. No? I mean, and the consequences, the dramatic consequences that it has in the quality of life of, of their families or their communities, et cetera. No? So it's, it's interesting uh, to hear this. I mean, I'm, uh, I mean listening to you, uh, and, and, and sorry, Deborah and Carolina, for not having your up-to-date bios, and thank you for uh, for sharing with the with the panelists and, and also with our audience uh, your current um, positions. Um, so, so the next you know question that I would like us to reflect on, and and, and I really like this conversational um, you know tone tone that we are having is is about the methodological challenges. No, I mean some of you already mentioned uh, some of the questions that you have faced, um, how have you sorted them out? No, I mean, clearly it is more difficult to get at women's uh, voices or stories. So how have you tried to sort out those challenges? And, and how would you say that those challenges differ from tracing the participation of men in these groups? No, because after all, we are talking about 
illicit activities that it's not easy to you know trace the story or get the facts right you no know? so there are i'm sure commonalities in terms of tracing men's and women's participations uh so how have you sorted those out and and if you don't mind we'll follow the same order uh so so patricia i'm glad we can see your image now i'm very glad to be here at the beginning we have to remember that narco was a topic in media the press the journalism as a journalist, uh, maybe 20 years ago, uh, the, that subject was on, on papers, okay? And when researchers began to, to abort it, to get an approach of this phenomena, was very interesting, but always distrust. Methodologically, you just must gener generate trust in order to approach these women or this, this man every person who is in illegal activities. So it's a matter of self-protection if you are living in the same place where these people live, live and working. For example, it, in my case, Elaine has visited Culiacan recently, and I trust a lot when I say self-protection is a very important uh, issue when you are working in the place. I'm in Culiacan, Sinaloa. I live here and it's difficult, for example, if I make an interview with a person who lives here because uh, people who is observing is relating to persons. And if something came out, some information, maybe it's the risk. Ah, you were talking to Patricia about this or who was talking with a journalist or a researcher is the same risk for a researcher as a, a, the same risk for a journalist. But we cannot use cams or audio recorders. We know this easily. Most of the time we have to write uh, as they speak. This is important. And research ethics is very important tool at the moment you want to enter to this world shadows which is very dangerous when you put a spotlight in a person who wants to remain anonymous. I think trust and self-protection are very important because in the research field and journalism, we don't want heroes. We want the truth. We want to try to understand what is happening in every kind of the uh, these organizations are very uh, low profile, so we have to try to not risk our life or our integrity when we work in this uh, in these cases of um, drug trafficking. Trust and tema is the, the, the key. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. Deborah, um, would you like to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I we, we've all touched on this a little bit, but I think the, first of all, there's sort of the invisibility of women's cases, which is in part a reflection of this male gaze. And I do think, I mean, female defense lawyers disagree with me who have represented uh, women drug traffickers. They think that it's not as biased as I suspect it may be because I think that, you know, most massive drug uh, drug related investigations in Latin America are pushed by the by 
the US, right? So it's DEA agents um, putting pressure on local and federal fiscalias to investigate groups that they've, at least investigate the groups that they've identified as, as the worst. That's certainly the case in Central America. Very little investigation really happens without pressure from the DEA. And most of those people are men. And most of those people see um, the biggest players in organized crime through the lens of violence, which is an important dynamic, I won't deny. But And women can also be extremely violent, as we all know. But it also discounts some of the major players who may not be violent actors. Um, you know, just some examples. One of, one of Chapo's chief money launderers was um, Guadalupe Fernandez Valencia, uh she's practically invisible i mean you google her and you'll see that she pleaded guilty in chicago and then her case goes completely cold and i'm like she was the highest ranking woman in the in the sinaloa cartel that we know of and yet everyone's talking about emma coronel because she was sexually involved with chapel like all of this reflects these kind of patriarchal sexually obsessed narratives around women one but the consequence of that is there isn't very much investigation into women or their cases are a way to the powerful men. That's certainly a pattern that I've found. Um, I've had real trouble and I would love any advice. I've had real trouble getting hold of substantial legal documents in Mexico about cases in Mexico. It's even hard for me to track down where women are in prison. If there's no press com if there's no press coverage or you know something in the media i don't i can't even find where they are i can't find out who their lawyers are you know it's really difficult to track down the basic information that you get by logging into pacer and that has been one of the massive incumbents for me plus a lot of those court documents you know the transcripts that you get on pacer from stuff that goes on in the courtroom a lot of that stuff isn't isn't officially public, at least not in Mexico. So it's very difficult to piece together, see, you know, for me as a journalist, you know, I'm a lot less thorough historically, but for me, it's about piecing together scenes, conversations, you know, exchanges, drama. And these things you can get from conversations that take place in courtrooms. And the only real, like, you know, substantial supply of those I have found is the American justice system. So the women that I chose to focus on was very much reliant on, am I going to have access to this kind of detail about their processes? Apart from the few women who did agree to speak to me. And I also, you know, I had some contact with women in the US and I managed to get into prison in, in Central America to visit one of the women that I focused on, who's known as the female Chapo. <laughs> oh, irony. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the male gaze, I think, and this general sort of lack of focus on women contributes to a lack of, you know, substantial materials. And it's this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If there's no focus on them, there's no media coverage, there's no there's no like legal documentation and it just kind of, and so there, there's no, you know, few, few people then dedicate themselves to investigating it because, and so it becomes a bit of a, a vicious cycle. But that said, I, and I'm sure it's been the same for all of you girls, like look and you will find. And I think 
all of the cases that I pieced together on Las Patronas was public information that had been there for years. And it's just no one had gone to, to unpick it. Um, so I do think it's getting better, but I think it's it's also related, and this will be my last point, sorry, it's related also to this kind of, you know, the Me Too movement, the changing dynamic around genders, this, this leaving behind of these kind of tr gender tropes that I think have fallen away in many other industries, but because organized crime is so invisible, it's a little bit behind in terms of our understanding of it, you know, it's harder to see and detect those changes in the way that we see them in football and tennis and the banking industry and all these other industries where women have come to rise up. So I think it's understandable that organized crime is always going to be a bit, uh, it was always going to take us longer to recognize those things. But I also think these public conversations about changing gender tropes and stereotypes has helped bring out the interest and thus the investigation. Yeah, no, this is this is absolutely fascinating. And I might go back in the in the next round to Patricia, because I was wondering, listening to you and to Patricia, if, um, you know, your positionality, no, I mean, or being read, I mean, as a as a female reporter, does that matter in terms of the type of access that you can get uh, to, to women's stories? Does that, has that matter or not? No, I mean, uh, does that make a difference? No, I, I wonder if, if in, your, in your work as journalist, does this make a difference? No, I mean, your positionality and, and specifically, I mean, being read as, as a woman. Um, and and one, one thing, uh, just very briefly, I mean, so fascinating about uh, Guadalupe Fernandez Valencia, is that her name? I mean, <laughs> It's, it's just incredible to me because it's it also you know like I mean yes the story is about men with guns no I mean and Patricia was also mentioning this and this kind of reproduces also the myth about drug trafficking as being completely separated from you know like bloodless crimes and from all of these networks of corruption so the story centers on the violence and all all of these other characters that are making this possible from other social classes and also from other genders don't get in the story. No, I well, mean, and and, and I, I hate I hate to say it, but it has to be said. I would say 60 or 70 percent of the women that I focused on were in their 50s or older. They weren't conventionally attractive, like in a babe sort of way, like they didn't have any of those qualities that would make, you know, the like bombastic gun toting babe headline or get Hollywood producers salivating over some, you know, psycho babe bitch who, you know, has killed 150 people. Like all of these very established narratives we have about women in crime, which are just so annoying and patronizing and, and false, but it's almost like, very few of the of my women fit into that and I think that's another reason why they didn't draw attention and I'm sure I'm sure the other panelists have 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 come across that too yeah, yeah. Elaine uh really looking forward to listening your reflections on methodological challenges and how to sort them out uh, from the archive and all the extensive work you've done in this topic Right, I think, you know, and this goes along with the same thing that, that Deborah was talking about, but I also wanted to touch on something that Patricia mentioned is about, I've always worked alongside journalists um, and worked with them very closely, uh, in part because it's, it's a comfort level, I consider myself a writer, it is something I've done throughout my career, 
So there has to be an aspect of respect and, and trust um, and integrity and, and also, you know, those methodological questions and how you approach the topic and how you approach somebody. Um, and, and so, you know, that also goes into the historical aspect of looking at the, the documents themselves and, and really, and, and also being willing to find them. And I think that aspect of mining resources and rather than saying, here's what I'm trying to prove to the light and to the archivist, find those documents for me, is actually having the integrity and the time and the patience and the tenacity to let the story be told to you in the aspect of the, the research that you're doing and, and, to, and to pursue that. And so that, and I recognize, you know, especially with COVID and, um, and some of the challenges that has presented to historians, that that is, is not easy. Um, but I've, I have been working alongside archivists and librarians for, for many, many years, and they are my partners and they have helped me. Um, and, it, and that partnership is very similar to partnerships that I forged with working with journalists, um, is that I can learn from them and they also have been amazing in working with me. So I was at one time stumbling around a law library in my former institution and the dean of the library came out and said, what do you do? What are you looking for? What's going on? I told her, I said, hey, I'm a drug researcher. I work on Mexico. I have no concept about how to find these documents in the US. I didn't know. And she's like, come into my office. And it was the best three hours I ever spent. Um, and that changed my life. Uh, and so and then as things became, you know, digitized, I always I hear her voice in my mind, you know, whenever I'm like, I got that one. And I know it's because of her. Um, so, you know, just being open to that and building those relationships, I think methodologically is really important. So whether you're working with journalists or you're working with librarians and archivists, or you're working with um, big data specialists or whatever, be open to that, ask questions and, and, and be ready to learn. Um, the other thing I want to think about, you know, I, I always consider about the challenges goes back to uh, what um, what what Deborah was saying about being invisible and 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 all these stereotypes about women that the only women who have merit or who should be studied are those who are attractive or beautiful or whatever and and so that's the women who are the most successful in organized crime. I'll be frank; they're not young. Um, as, as some women have said to an ethnographer and I who work together, you know, I don't have a boot job because then I have to actually alter my bulletproof vest. So, you know, these ideas, these concepts that the only woman who can be, be successful in this area is a young, very attractive, very beautiful woman. When in fact, the men aren't really, who are very successful, aren't young, aren't attractive, and sometimes their sexuality is up for questioning too, or their personal habits. And so, you know, those are things that I think are, are important and, and to keep in mind. And um, the other thing is, is anytime you're doing work on people who are kind of working in the shadows, right? They're, that, you know, to be public, no one, no one donates. Well, now we have social media and that's great. If you're grabbing that stuff, again, working with people who do a lot of digital, big data analysis, stuff like that. But, you know, for the most part, it, it wasn't that drug traffickers were giving their papers um, to, to libraries and archives. That's starting to change. Um, but, 
but the aspect is that you know there are those documents there and but then you also they're produced frequently by the state and so there also has to be a mindset of your methodology that's why your definition and it's really important what is organized crime what does it mean and understanding your role you know as a historian or as a researcher going back to what patricia said about you know integrity and honesty and and but also being skeptical and and thinking about that material and 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 in, in fact reading against the grain right and and then valid you know validating and and finding information to support what you're seeing so one case I worked on, um, which was the Maria Went case in my book, that took me years to piece together. The book came out in 2014. I started working on, I worked on that case for 10 years, trying to find that material. And that meant library, the New York Public Library, John Jay College Library, um, the Roosevelt Archives, and then resources in Mexico City. And it was a case study that I thought I could not find enough material. But I was tenacious and I kept asking questions and and asking for help among not only librarians and archivists, but other scholars, too. And so I think that that's part of what, you know, we have to think about the challenges. And I would say it's not just for women. It's also for men. I think frequently what we have for men, it's in the studies of, of masculinity and organized crime are very superficial. They never address the complexities, not only the complexity of the person, but the complexity of, of their entire life. And that's where, again, gender can come into play, that gender analysis. Thank you. Thank you, Elena. I, I agree completely. Um, I, I'm very interested, Carolina, like how, how do you deal with these questions? No, I mean, as a political scientist, like working with these issues in the present day context, uh, what 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 are your tips I, i'm taking notes by the way and i think this has been very beneficial for everybody listening to us uh and also i just want to address that i i see there is a question from the uh from the audience i will read it to the to the to the panelists once we finish our our next round of of questions so carolina well first i would like to meet in person with you we like for 24 hours all you know the whole time talking about this because it's so much there are so many issues we can uh discuss and i'd like to to take some of the highlights you made Emma, uh, because the other part of my research is focused in the um multiplication of inmate of woman inmate regarding drug sales strict drug sales i mean uh so it seems to be that at the lower level the work of uh, law enforcement agency it's genderized because if we see at the lower level the the tensions with, regarding women or men it had grew in both cases but in the case of the females have grew considerably uh more so it is important to see what is happening there why are these women in Latin America in particular being detained related to street sales of drugs? And the other thing I would like to add uh, related to this too is that we are talking the whole time about drugs. And it is true that in Latin America, this is the most important manifestation of organized crime, but we don't have to forget about the others. 
and women in money laundry seems to be having a very important uh, role also in human trafficking um, for a long time there have been there um, not only from the very beginning recruiting other women in general uh, but also managing the business of course there are women all over the place uh, not only in those manifestations but i don't want to uh, you know narrow it only to the drug trafficking. Other point, the images you were mentioning, who are these women? They are not only old, or I don't know, uh, with, I may say more than 40, 50 years old. Um, they are regular women and they dress like moms, you know? And this is a, a very strong idea because moms, do not hurt. Moms are supposed to be good. And I think there is a very strong link between the idea of we have, that we have of this woman and why are we not targeting them as criminals. That being said, <laughs> regarding the methodology, it is very difficult. Uh, I don't do field work as uh, Patricia and Elaine. I work in different way. I work a lot with ethnographies and interviews. Um, most of the time uh, in a very preserved environment, because as Patricia was telling, it's a very uh, dark world to get into. And I should recognize that many of the times I have been afraid to be further. And I try to respect that because no one will take care of you if you don't take care of yourself. So I try to work, you know, like um, through actors connected with those factors. And then of course uh, you have the documents, they made information, uh, which is also uh, very, um, I don't know how to say, but narrow it. Uh, we know that media is not taking enough attention to this woman uh, that actually seems to be in charge. And they are diverting the attention to the Buchonas kind of time. Uh, so it is very difficult. And we also have to make like our choice every day. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Carolina. I have a couple more questions and also questions uh, you know, connected to what you are mentioning right now, including like the role of social media and how media plays or not a role in your methodology, and also the usage of these, you know, like female actors in these uh, organized criminal groups, and also some other question about family and sentimental ties. But before getting into that, uh, let me just read the question that we have from the audience, and this question is open for any to any of you. This comes from Jennifer. Uh, Salahoub, it says, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. I would love to hear your reflections on how organized crime, criminal groups are using gender, women's gender in particular, to further their interest. We know that terrorist organizations, for example, use gender quite effectively to mobilize people. I wonder if and how organized criminal groups use it and if there are opportunities for policymakers to disrupt 
the stabilize leverage this to address drug trafficking organized crime many thanks so the the floor is yours any anybody that wants to just raise your hand or just on, on, on mute your microphone and go ahead i see elaine and then what i think also elaine. yeah i'm just gonna be really quick i think um you know the organized crime is very attractive it's very sexy it has historically been so um what was presented even in newspapers in the past, you know, people in clubs and dance, I mean, just all those aspects that that attracted women. And there's been some great oral histories done in the US of women who were drawn into organized crime and they were captivated by it, as well as, you know, you know, I married the mob type novels or something like that. And so it it is, and, and in fact, sometimes that's to draw women in, and frequently the women were were employed within the organization to doing different things. And that's historical also, whether it's, you know, confidants, mules, um, fixers or something like that. And I think a, a, a good um, example is like Virginia Hill, historically mm -hmm. in the US. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I to add to that, I, do, I you know, I um, have spoken to a number of prosecutors and criminal defense lawyers in the US who represented um, female drug traffickers. And most of them say that women use the fact that they're underestimated to move more discreetly. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure I, I think all women have egos, just like men. Um, but I think there's an opportunity to play with the fact that they're less less suspect than men to to go about their business their organized criminal business um so i think they i think a lot of women are smart and they use it to their advantage rather than getting upset about it <laughs> that's my view carolina i absolutely agree with the word i was thinking about that for me um women use this silence as a strategy this is a strategy to develop the business uh, as good as they can on one hand. On the other hand, something that was mentioned on the question two, I think that the role that women had uh, putting together, you know, the, the link between criminal organization and communities is also very strong. And if we talk about criminal governments, governance, we need to think on the role of this woman. These women, in many times, especially in low income neighborhoods, are the ones that organize the community. And if they have a relation with criminal organizations, they will be a link with that criminal organizations. Which also leads me to another very important thing that is that if the criminal organization build the legitimacy in that communities, that could become a political capital that may be uh, explode in the political field by the political elite. Thank you, Patricia. Do you want to add something to this, uh, or or? Well, regarding this, Gemma, I prepared some slides. And maybe it's not, uh, we have no time for, for everyone of this slide, but I, I put something like a types of roles of women in organized crime. I think when we talk uh, about women in organized crime, 
we have to to have that clear idea what kind of roles have these women because we are talking about news that is something that is vanishing i i can say that regarding talking about technology or equality between men and women when they are uh, search in for example in an airport and we have the role of this beauty women trophy women the buchonas that we said in Sinaloa Elaine said beautiful women are this kind of women isn't it it's very different from a mule which is a very normal woman it's a very um, low profile woman but it's different also if we talk about a laundering money woman. I mean, it's very different, the stereotype or the idea that we have of this kind of women. And also, if we talk about a boss, a, a woman, like, uh, for, for example, I, I think in Sinaloa, it's not the cultural context or have a boss, a woman boss in this um, cartel, because it's a very macho world. But if we think in a woman like a boss, we have to think in a very beautiful, fancy woman like uh, uh, this this woman, the La Reina del Sur, this actress. It's just for Netflix. It's not reality. It's not the real thing that we can see. Okay, and our experience in Sino was very different. And also, there is another role that we can find on the south of Mexico, maybe, but not in Sinaloa, is the Sicaria woman. Maybe in other context, we can find her, but not here. It's not the same if a woman used violence against another woman because um, jealousy or something like that. It's not the same thing. We are talking about roles of women in organized crime. It's the same with men. We have to think that it's different. Buchon, narco, sicario, dealer, burrero. It's very different. This is a structure very, very complex. It's a very complex structure. So. Uh, when we talk about women in organized crime, we have to have a clear idea of the types of roles. I think it's important. Mm. No, thank you. This is this is extremely interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking to. I mean, we know um, this hasn't been researched enough. No, I mean, which makes the work of all of you even more valuable, and 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 it's making me think also how productive it would be, you know, cross comparisons, no? Carolina was mentioning the case of Brazil, like I myself have worked, like in the past, I work uh, with the topic of Maras in El Salvador, and I was doing some interviews in terms of participation of women in Maras, no? I mean, and similarly misunderstood, no? I mean, as, as you know, women only being able to participate if they are girlfriends, but actually when I interviewed Mareras, they were like, no way, like I'm not a girlfriend. Uh, this whole myth that they could just participate if they were raised by 18 members of the gang, no, they feel deeply offended by this. So, so I think you know, cross comparison, you know, across the region would be also incredibly uh, productive. But one of the questions that I had, um, 
and we're kind of running out of time, but just, I mean, overall there is this narrative for the Mexican case in particular, like this kind of macro narrative that seems to suggest that drug trade has been, uh, has gone from a process in which these criminal organizations were more family-based and community-based to a certain process of disembeddedness when they have become like more disembedded from these local communities. Um, do you see this having an effect in terms of how women participate in these organizations? I mean, is, is, it, um, is, it, is it the case that they participate through family ties and sentimental ties primarily or not necessarily? I mean, they can enter the business through another door completely. Patricia, you want to say something? Very interesting question, Hema. <laughs> yes, we, um, we have seen and the rise of the first drug lords, for example, in Sinaloa. Uh, when we talk about Marco, uh, the beginning of this phenomenon is Sinaloa, isn't it? In Netflix is Sinaloa, the narco corridos is Sinaloa. So we have that narco made in Sinaloa. This is very important too. It is why, for example, the narco in Michoacan is not so fancy for Netflix series. Why every, every series from Sinaloa, Elaine, explain me, please, this. Well, uh, it's Sinaloa, it's just great. <laughs> so it's very interesting. So when we talk about the structure of the families, we talk about a man in front of the organization. We can talk about Pedro Aviles, Rafael Caro Quintero, Miguel Angel Feli, Ismael El Mayo Zambada, El Chapo Guzman, every, every lot. Uh, but if we talk about a new generation, we must to understand that the new generation, at least in Sinaloa, is Los Chapitos. That is the sound of Los Chapitos. Next Monday is going to be three years uh, of this Culiacanazo, this, this uh, very, very hard fight against army and the members of the Sinaloan cartel. And I remember this because today I interviewed two journalists, two friends, friends, colleagues, and they told me about women in drug trafficking. I said, we are discussing this. And they both, men, told me, well, still in Sinaloa, if we talk about illegal or legal business, the man, the father, the heritage is for men, not for women. And we have four, uh, 40 important businessmen in Sinaloa, just one or two women. And the heritage of the power is for men in these powerful criminal families. It's, this is a very interesting thing, but um, if we see what is the problem now in Sinaloa, who is, who is going to take the power of the father or of the good father? Men or women? Obviously men. I think this is a very familiar structure. It's a very cultural context well known in Sinaloa. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. No, this is, this is incredibly useful. And, but also my, as you were saying, no, I mean, point that the um, at Sinaloa, or how unique the case is, and yet how present it is in popular culture or in our current discussions about the topic. Uh, 
Uh, Elaine, do you do you have some thoughts about this question of like family ties, sentimental ties, or other ways in which women get involved? Yeah, and and I don't think it's it's unique to Mexico. Um, if we're looking at Italian organized crime, Russian organized crime, Eastern European, um, if if we are looking at uh, tongs and and how they evolve and women are in in, in be kind of rise to the occasion it's through familial ties and that goes for women and men so so we're making assumptions that women only gain power through their husbands or their brothers or or whatever but men gain that exact same power too and i think that that's you know part of you know the work that and conversations that Patricia and I have been having, whether historical or contemporary, that that is the case. I mean, there are exceptions. Um, there are some 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 major exceptions, and usually, I almost think it's kind of like you know somebody in you know a royal family who you know becomes a, a trusted confidant for whatever reason and is elevated, and and then you'll have somebody who has like a skill that is needed a pilot, an ace pilot, a really good money launderer, somebody, I think of Lilia Parada in the Medellin cartel, who was arrested in the sweeps with Leroy, uh, Nikki Barnes and Frank Lucas and all these other Italian organized crime. She was amazing at logistics. And, and we don't talk about her. Um, she wasn't part of the family. She worked well with Griselda Blanco. She worked well in the Medellin cartel. She's but she has disappeared, but and it was her skill in logistics, distantly related, but it was she was elevated. But and and I think that's what we also see, right? Is somebody has a skill set, you know, they might be a really great banker too, or something like that on the side, and they're brought in. They can launder. Um, and and I think something else is important to remember about women, and I just want to put this out there. So if we're thinking about, you know, organizational skills, so excellent logistics, um, as, as Caro mentioned, you know, money laundering, um, the ability to organize and the ability to communicate and communicate with lots of people and be very direct and keep things in order. And those are skills you see in women in international business. And I think you see them in um, organized crime and that it, those are those skills that are admired and they're brought in. And so, you know, so, but again, I think historically men and women come up the ranks through the family, unless they have some amazing skill set, and then they're recruited. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I really love this reflection because it's, it helps us or it pushes us to, um, you know, confront our own gender biases. I mean, there is no reason to assume that only women uh, are getting involved in the business through those, um, you know, family ties, family networks. But it does me raise the question of what is the pattern uh, with criminal organizations such as the Zetas, no? I mean, that are imagined at least as more, as I said, like disembedded, no? I mean, and not so much developed, or perhaps it's a wrong idea, no? Perhaps they are also linked to family ties and the participation or the patterns of participation are similar to the classic Sinaloa cartel structure. I don't know. Um, Deborah, do you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, a, a former DEA officer said to me um, about Marjorie Chacon Rossell, who at one point the US Treasury Department described as Central America's most prolific drug trafficker. He said that had she, she was a middle class girl, she had a university education. He said to me, had she gone into you know, the, the, the licit world, she could well be on, you know, 
the the Forbes 500, whatever, you know, to, on the front of best CEO magazine or whatever. And she just so happened to go into the money laundering and drug logistics business. She got in through her husband's connection to the Lorenzana Guatemala drug trafficking mafia that was, was dismantled. But it's totally true what Elaine says, that men and women mostly get in through these clan-based structures, you know, their cousins or brothers or mothers or fathers or whatever. But that fact is used to minimize the role of women, whereas with men, it's like just how they got into the business. It's not used to minimize, minimize their role at all, which, again, is just this totally, like, gender-based notion about women's contribution and capacities and it's 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 something that's so fundamental I just don't think it's even questioned you know and this is the problem with all of the way that women are perceived it's like these these understandings of things have been repeated and reiterated and they're so endemic to the way that the that this area is understood that even saying that people will be like oh yeah and it's like it's so bad that we minimalize women's role for that. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think absolutely. I mean, most of the women I covered came in through their families or were sort of the next in line in a in a family structure where people were were like gradually getting killed off. And then there were people stepping up to sort of take their place, which is something of an occupational hazard in the, in, in in organized crime. But I also think, you know, Felia Allen's work on, on the mafia is really, on the mafia in, in Italy is super interesting too, because I also think that women struggle to perceive themselves as powerful in certain, in certain structures. So like one of her papers was about the wife of a mafia boss. I don't remember the details, I'm afraid. And I don't, I don't know the, uh, the sort of uh, star star people in in Italian organized crime the way I do in Mexican, but you know the once the the husband was put away, she was kind of in charge. She was the she picked up the, but she she couldn't see herself as the next in command. She was just the messenger, even though she was making decisions and she was you know delegating. Like she could not perceive herself in that role, and I think that's also really an important factor in our region is women struggle to see themselves as powerful because they're also kind of bought in to the perception of them as minimal, you know? And I think, you know, and we've all experienced this in real life in different ambits, right? Where, where we're in male environments and, and, and it's hard to see, to perceive yourself as, um, it's 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 a perception that's hard to kind of change in your mind because of the way that we've been socialized. And I think that's the case for women in organized crime as well. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, Carolina, you want to add something to this? Yeah, uh, I always pose the same question through an audience full of men who take the decisions at home. And the answer, at, at, I, mean, I mean, at least in Latin America, right? And they always answer my wife. And I always ask, but why do we think in organized crime should be different? It is that they don't, the woman don't take the decisions or is that they are not aware of, as Deborah was telling. Uh, but it's 
absolutely probably that they are the ones making the strong decisions, the stronger decisions, even though then men would, you know, develop the idea, for example. And that's also something that uh, appears when men are incarcerated, for example, as uh, Patricia, Elaine, and they were, were mentioned, it is true that many of the women in, in the highest level had inherited uh, the power from their husbands when once they are in prison. But if they are dead, they uh, there may be, you know, a fight through different male figures not to let that woman live. She is like the idea, I know I, I, I don't know if I'm clear, but the idea is that you need the support of a man behind you. Of course there are exceptions, right? But this is something that is very strong in many of Latin American criminal organizations. Another thing, and very short because we, we need to, to close, um, is that not only family ties are that sentimental ties that bring women or men to criminal organizations. Friendship, love stories, uh, partnerships, the need to belong to a certain organization, society, being marginalized, are those also things that bring women and men to criminal organizations? Thank you, thank you, Carolina. That's that's absolutely true. And and so we have around, you know, five minutes, no, seven minutes uh, to finish. So the last question I had, and and I think this panel gives part of the answer to that was about what can we do, right? What can we do from, you know, like your perspective as journalists, as academics, I mean, to, you know, promote a more nuanced uh, understanding of participation of women in these criminal organizations. So we have, as I said, seven minutes. So if any of you brave enough to talk, just give me one key point or two key points in two minutes each. Oh my God. Patricia. <laughs> Well, I feel there is a sensitive gap between media and academia. And as a researcher, we have to prepare to be more approachable for the audience of the media. A lot of times we, we heard a, a researcher that we don't understand nothing. So maybe we must be less academic and more understandable. understandable? in the media more scientific and less sensationalistic. So we have to fight against the invisibility of women in every space of our societies. But I think women are every time more and more influential in politics, business, education, as we can see, research, and even organized crimes, obviously. But we have to balance all our work and please, academic people must be more understandable for person of the audience of the media i agree <laughs> deborah yes you want uh, to, I would, to that? I, I would say two things the first is i think as times shift and the world is ready for this the fact that we're even having this conversation is 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 huge i mean it's kind of sometimes i'm like amazed that this is a new area of research and these are new conversations happening 
when this isn't a new trend, as Elaine's historical work has shown. And two, the other thing to do is just keep doing the work, keep bringing those cases to the to public attention, like having these conversations about how, yes, women can be bad. Yes, we can kill. Yes, we can be violent, which is is still uncomfortable, I think, for contemporary society. And I, I understand that, but I do think to better understand, um, to better understand organized crime, we just have to keep doing the work and doing the investigations. Elaine. I agree, you know, making it understandable, um, doing the work uh, also for, you know, historians and, and people interested in the past, you know, work with librarians and archivists. Work, they are your partners <laughs> and they can help you and find, they're information specialists. I see one of my former students is, is attending and he's a librarian, thanks Ray. Um, so, you know, just again, I think just really looking to build those partnerships, asking questions and asking those difficult questions of the sources and being tenacious in, in doing the research. I think that is the most important and not blindly accepting everything just because somebody has written, you know, a book talking about all the guys. There's always look at the, the complexity and the context and, and dismantle that. Thank you so much, Elaine. Carolina, very briefly, one minute. <laughs> I can only agree with that. What can I tell you? Uh, we have to keep on doing our job. Uh, we have to keep on posing uncomfortable questions. Uh, I should say that when we do that, in many cases, the, the, the people we interview, you know, are like shake and start figuring it out also what is happening there. They uh, challenge the way they are thinking and that's very important to uh, bring in the change. Also, I think that is very important to highlight all the evidence we have gathered and all the, the cases you have built, for example, in order to show that there are women in organized crime, that they may be criminal actors and they have to be treated like that. Otherwise, the public policies we are building are not good enough because they are not capable of responding of what is actually happened in the criminal world. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic and I've learned a lot and I'm very happy that our conversation is going to be, you know, recorded or it's being recorded. So we, I mean, I'm going to come back to it and I'm sure I, other audience will come back to it. And, and, and thank you to each one of you for your amazing work. And hopefully this will be the first of many, many more conversations. And I'm just looking forward to keep learning from you guys. And thank you for this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24-hour conference on global organized crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening.